Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here in dining room studios with someone that I have wanted to have on the podcast for a really long time. And here he is, Michael Ian Black. Hello and welcome. Hi. Thank you. So, so much to talk about. Let's just get this out of the way right away. It is much earlier than I normally record this podcast. In fairness to me, it's not that early. It's 9.30 in the morning. And you're on East Coast time, I assume? Well, I've been in uh, town for about a week, so I think I'm acclimated to the West Coast, but I have to go down to San Diego today, and rather than cancel on you, I asked you if you could do it a little earlier. And I said yes. You did say yes, and now the first thing you're doing is bitching about it. No, I'm not bitching about it. Sounds like you're bitching about it. I'm not. I am setting it up so that if my energy is not where it should be, then... You know what, though? I was going to say then people will be like, oh, well, it was early. But no one will have sympathy for that because I recognize that 930 is not early to most people. No, most people get up and go to work. Most people have jobs. It is a Saturday. It is a Saturday. Yes, it is absolutely a Saturday. Thank you. And so if I in any way uh, made this difficult for you, I apologize. Oh, no, no, no. I was anxious to do the podcast. I'm excited. I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. I'm a little concerned that I will not be the top of my game. Uh, and I just feel like I'm just going to say it. Due to the perfectly reasonable hour, (laughs) you may not be at the top of your game. I understand. Now you host How to Be Amazing. I do. Which is an amazing podcast. Thank you. What time do you do that? Uh, it varies. Generally, uh, generally mornings ten or eleven. Mm. But uh, uh, but listen. So to, late. Well, listen to me, girl. <laughs> listen to me. For me to do that podcast, I live in the wilds of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. We record the podcast in New York City. So for me to uh, to get into town to do the podcast requires hours of my time. Just. Just from waking to driving, right? All that all that is required for you is to roll out of bed and walk into your dining room. But my hair is freshly washed. I noticed. I noticed that you you Thank put on, you. you put on your face and not you, all the way, just partly. Uh, well, it's the left side. It's a it's a gorgeous face. It's a gorgeous <laughs> punum. The hair is done. The clothes impeccable. You look great. Thank you. Yeah. You could have put a little more energy into the way it you It didn't look. even occur to me. That's where you are in your career now. <laughs> That's where I am on this podcast. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, I want to talk about your... There's so many things I want to talk about, but let's actually start with the podcast. Um, so you are a really, really good interviewer. Thank and you. I keep hearing hearing that from people. And I think that maybe people... Or like, rather, are you... Did you, have you always known that you're a good interviewer? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for saying that I'm a good interviewer. Secondly, I don't really uh, think of it as interviewing so much, although I guess I'm starting to because I'm starting to understand sort of how to strategize an interview a little bit more than I did when I first started. But my intention as an interviewer is really just to uh, un- uh, do a little bit of research, understand who my guest is, be familiar with their work, and then... Uh, ask them questions that I'm interested in hearing the answer to. I try not to ask questions that I already know the answer to Mm -hmm. because for me that's boring. And I figure 
most people, if you're interested enough in the guest, you'll, you'll then go for my podcast and do your own, do your own work. I try to set it up enough so that everybody understands who it is, what they do, and then I ask questions that I need answers to. Mm-hmm. And then I just listen. I don't, I don't particularly prepare. I have a list of questions, which I rarely consult. I usually just know the first question, ask, and then listen. Mm-hmm. I loved the interview with Dan Harris. Uh-huh. The um, meditator. Yes. Newsman slash meditator. That's right. The guy who I actually almost felt like I I was going to have a panic attack as I heard him, the footage of him having a panic attack oh, on air. Did it affect you in that way? Well, fortunately for me, we put that in later, so I didn't listen to it. Oh. I saw yeah. it beforehand, but no, I didn't. It didn't give me a panic attack. Right. Um, he's an interesting guy. I loved... Um, I just loved that he said that all that power positive thinking stuff is bullshit because that's just been like a pet peeve of mine of late. Uh, Yeah. What's interesting was he did his own sort of investigative work. I mean, he followed his own kind of, uh, I don't know if it's quite a spiritual journey, but a journey into sort of how to quiet his mind. And it took him to Deepak Chopra and to, uh, uh, what's that other guy's name? Mark Epstein was, oh, uh, no, Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle. Um who, uh, yeah, he's the guy who, that he said, he, he, he didn't say that it was necessarily bullshit, just that like Eckhart Tolle was somebody who was sort of on his own little trip and he understood what he was talking about, but nobody else understood or could apply what he was talking about. And then he gradually sort of found his way to meditation and, uh, and, and is sort of divorcing it from the religious aspects of it and is and is just sort of using it as a as a like a physical practice like like a sort of secular yoga mm-hmm. do you meditate no want to have do you tried it you, yeah in like bursts of 90 seconds or something <laughs> um no i haven't i don't know why i haven't uh i think maybe because i feel like i need a teacher and haven't gone the next step in terms of just finding someone to teach me mm-hmm. um so how did how to be amazing come about my two producers, uh, Mary and Jenny, uh, worked together at uh, Symphony Space in New York, and Symphony Space in New York hosts selected shorts on NPR, and the, they have a lot of, um, they're in the NPR world a little bit, and I think they wanted to sort of do their own thing, uh, maybe create a radio show, and I had worked a little bit with them, and they approached me about maybe hosting a radio show, and I said, yeah, because I like radio, and I like audio, and uh, I like talking to people, and then we just sort of had had to figure out what it, what it would be, and we sort of uh, arrived at uh, an interview show about the creative process, mm-hmm. and then we went from there. And so, in, and in terms of your creative process with them, and how you decide sort of how to put an episode together with the editing and the how do we put it together? Well, I have very little to do with the post production of it. Um, both because I don't like listening to myself, and so it would be torture for me to sit there and do it, and uh, because of a lack of time. Mm-hmm. So we sort of put it together, um, together the three of us, and then in, and then they do the post. Gotcha. Uh, okay, so I, it's fun sitting here with you right now since I spent the last few days reading your most recent book, Navel Gazing, True Tales of Bodies, Mostly Mine, but also My Mom's, which I know sounds weird. Um, that's the title. And so I feel like I've spent like days with you mm. in my head. And now here you are. Um, I loved the book. Thank you so much. It, it just, I think 
there's so many things about it that I was really struck by, but the tone I thought was so perfect. It was, the book was funny. I mean, I laughed out loud, but it was also poignant and it was deep and it was kind of a, a just meditation on life. I mean, all the, like the big themes that you would, that someone who, someone like me would want in a book were all there. It was, are you happy with how it turned out? Yes, I think so. I think so. Uh, I think so. I mean, there's, there's, I, I've, you know, I don't know that I'm ever really fully satisfied with something, but um, I think, I think I set out to, I think I accomplished what I set out to do. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you kind of chronicle your mother's health, Mm -hmm. deteriorating health. She has cancer. And you repeatedly return to it, but in between are... The same mother that I'm going to see in San Diego today that you're making me feel bad about. I mean... I was not making you feel bad. I don't know. I mean... I was not trying, at least. You're starting with, look at what you're making me do, getting up this early so that you can see your ailing, dying mother. Think about that for a second. I really am the twat that people tell me I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, and then in between are stories that... um, from your life about using your body or physical matters as a jumping off point. Would mm-hmm. you say that's accurate? Mm-hmm. Um, did your mom have any qualms about you talking uh, so openly about her health? No, she, uh, I told her I wanted to write about her and I wanted to interview her and she thought about it fairly briefly and then she was like sure go ahead and uh it was great it was nice to it was nice to have very intimate conversations with my mother i mean uncomfortable at times obviously um but uh but nice i mean it was it was it was a good way to sort of delve into our relationship in a, in a deeper way mm-hmm. um just starting with the thing that I, as I was reading, I was reading it on my, my Kindle, but I found myself wanting to throw my phone across the room. It made me so angry. The part of the book where your mom's parents subjected her to uh, electroconvulsive therapy. Yes. Yes. That sent me into a rage. Hmm. How, uh, is that the first you heard about it when you interviewed her? I think she had. No, I, I I had sort of known sort of sketchy details of it previously, but uh, it was the first time that we really talked about it. Um, they subjected her to shock therapy for reasons that she's not really clear about, although it had to do with their fear of her being gay, um, which, in fact, she turned out to be, although she didn't believe herself to be so at the time. And... Um, the 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 shock therapy kind of wiped her memory so she doesn't really remember the circumstances around it or, or why it happened other than she knows that there was some sort of episode uh involving her and this couple that she used to babysit for um i i have a theory about it which i lay out in the book i think it's a pretty good theory mm-hmm. that uh, she had developed feelings for this woman yes well she was them. she was close on a friendship level to this woman i think 
she, uh, I think she expressed them in a kind of, she was a teenager. I mean, she was like probably 18 or 19. I think she had a kind of meltdown and, uh, confessed her love to this woman in front of the woman's husband and, uh, and what, and got hysterical and the couple correctly called her parents and, and then, then, uh, her parents incorrectly took her to the loony bin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my theory. I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it seems to make sense. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about your grandparents? Well, you know, I, you know, in 2016, it's very easy to say they did the wrong thing in that scenario. In the context of 1965 or whatever, you know, it's a tougher call. Um, I don't, I, you know, it's impossible for me to put myself in their shoes and, and to say what, what they should have done in the context of the times. I don't know that I could ever bring myself to subject my kid to something like that. Um, but I can understand them being very scared if, if, for example, my theory is correct, that she like literally just sort of had a writhing teenage emotional breakdown on the floor of somebody else's home, you know, screaming her love for this this woman i can understand them being totally freaked out and not knowing what to do right um yeah i guess that's true i mean the thing the things that we now think are barbaric at the time people weren't like let's do something barbaric like they thought that was what they should do right and you know they didn't lobotomize her which is good good that is good (laughs) it'd be a much different book if they had (laughs) the book wouldn't have been written had they had they done that right um it i mean it was I don't know. You know, my it, it my mom certainly is uh very resentful that they did that, understandably so. Mm-hmm. Um because of because it because she doesn't have her memories or because like how could you my parents do that to me? I think a combination of things. Also, you know, she was forci- forcibly institutionalized for whatever 2 months, however long the treatment lasted. Um and I don't know that she thought there was necessarily anything wrong with her. Right. I mean, look, there's plenty wrong with my mom. I don't know that being gay is one of those things. Well, I thought it was really interesting. You make the point in the book that you grew up taking your parents' love for granted. Like you knew for sure that they loved you, but at the same time, you didn't feel safe. Well, I'll say that I knew I took my mom's love for granted. Uh, I did not take my dad's love for granted. Um, Mostly not that he didn't love us, but he just didn't really know how to express it. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents divorced when I was five, but so I lived with my mom and yes, uh, the household in which I grew up was somewhat chaotic. Uh, my mom was involved with this woman who I describe as a rage addict in the book. And I think that's an apt description. She was just prone to flying off the handle at any little thing. And, um, that in turn affected my mom's emotional state. Uh, it made her into kind of a rage addict and the house was just always on edge and it was just always, uh, it felt like a tinderbox. Um, but at the same, so that, so we didn't feel safe, but at the same time, my mom also always told my siblings and myself that she loved us. And, you know, I believed it. How do you think growing up in an environment that was so chaotic, affect chaotic and filled with people potentially flying off the handle? How did that affect you? Um, I don't know. Um, it certainly made me want to get out immediately. And I did, um, 
you know, it, it created, there was a lot of sort of gender confusion in my home, uh, for me anyway, about how to be, um, just a, a boy, how to be a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are things that I sort of continue to think about to this day that has less to do with sort of the emotional state of the household than maybe more of the, uh, uh, sort of sexual composition of the household and the fact that my my mom and uh, her partner were both you know pretty like um angry feminists they were sort of like the bad feminists mm. um you know sort of declared themselves to be feminists and worked on sort of feminist issues but there was always a kind of undercurrent of um male resentment and kind of i wouldn't say man hating but it wasn't far from that uh in the house. And as a boy growing up in that, you're like, Oh, men are shit. And so you sort of feel like a shithead. Do you think you make the point in the book that most of your friends were female Mm -hmm. growing up? Um, do you think that's why, or are those related? Um, I'm sure they're related in some respects. I mean, my best friend was a boy and we were best friends from the time we were five till the time, you know, we both left for college. Um, but yeah, most of my friends and actually I really only developed uh, a lot of female friends once uh, I skipped a grade. Uh, I went from fourth to sixth. And I think that actually had more to do with it because there there seemed to be something that happened among the male population, or maybe it was just my class, that sixth grade class, where I had a lot of male friends in, in when I was a kid. And then when I skipped a grade and I went into sixth grade, everybody, the boys just felt so much, so much bigger and sort of scarier and they were kind of dicks and <laughs> I just I was just more comfortable with the girls mm-hmm. was this in New Jersey at this point mm-hmm. um skip did you skip a grade because you were so advanced because I'm a genius because I'm it's a impressive. goddamn genius yeah uh what was that like skipping a grade stupid horrible <laughs> terrible decision why um be- for because I like I was comfortable you know I had yeah. friends I was socially um uh, adept. I was doing well in school. And then I got put into a situation where I didn't know anybody. And, um, you know, everything suffered. Mm-hmm. My schoolwork suffered. Uh, I suffered emotionally. And, you know, I was given the choice of not doing it. But even in fourth grade, I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so one less year of school, that's, that's a huge, huge uh, advantage. So yes, I'll absolutely skip a grade. Were you someone who always wanted to be older? Uh, no, I don't know that I necessarily wanted to be older. I just didn't. I just wanted to be away. I just wanted to be on my own. So if that meant being older, then sure. Do you remember the first time you were keenly aware of like, I want to get out of here? Um, I don't know that there was ever a moment, a specific moment, but I, I mean, as far back as I can remember living in that house, I was like, I want to get the fuck out of this house. Was your did your brother feel the same way? Oh yeah, and you you have a sister mm-hmm. with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Did she live with you guys? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, something that that uh, I was struck by. So your dad died when you were very young, twelve. Yeah, and um, you talk about in the book that there was a life insurance policy, uh-huh. and you guys decided that the. Is is it correct to say you decided that the the majority of the money should go to Susan's care? Yes, my sister. Um, that's like a a very I think selfless decision to make as a young person. Well, by the time, um, 
the there was more than just the life insurance. There was also a uh, malpractice suit because my dad died uh, sort of unnecessarily in the hospital. And by the time that case was settled, we were late teens, 16, 17, something like that. Still, a lot of 16, 17-year-olds are assholes. I guess. Um, it just seemed like the right thing to do. I mean, I was in a... I was in a panic about money uh, and remain in a panic about money. uh, You say remain like presently? Oh, yes. And will always be in a panic about money. (laughs) Um, So it wasn't easy for me. um, But I just knew it was the right thing to do. So we didn't, I mean, you know, we didn't really have to think about it. In terms of always including presently. Well, let me just, let me just add to that. Part of my panic was I knew I was going to be an actor Mm -hmm. and I knew with some certainty that I was going to be poor. Like, you know, my, part of my mom's argument, which was the correct argument, was, look, you got you boys, you know, you can Work. make a living. <laughs> Your yeah. sister can't. So, you know, it's the right thing to do. And I was like, yeah, you can make a My brother can, but I'm going to be a fucking actor. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to be dirt poor. But it just, it still seemed like the right thing to do. So in terms of always being in a panic about money, even in the, I don't, I imagine that you're extremely wealthy right now. I'm not. I make jokes all the time that I am. I'm really not. Okay. But at the times of your career where you've been more solvent, let's say, if I'm using that word correctly. Sure. Have you still had the panic? Oh, yeah. The panic is uh, deep-seated. And my brother has the same thing. And and that has to do with growing up in the household that we grew up in. How so? Because money was always an issue. Oh, right. There was always sort of... You know, just it was always in the air, just conversations about money and and how we're going to be able to afford this and that and the other thing in groceries and well, and it was just like it was just you know they just always talked about it and so I always felt like we were always on the cusp of being out on the street. It wasn't true, but it felt that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I just resolved that I would never be in that situation and uh, have done every, everything in my power, every whorish thing in my power <laughs> to make sure. <laughs> That I'm not. And now uh, my wife and I just built a new house. And uh, so now I feel like I'm absolutely right on the cusp of being thrown onto the street at any moment. <laughs> um, where did you live while the house was being built? Uh, well, we live in, as I said, Connecticut. And so we had a house and we were living in that house while the new house was being built. Does the new house have any fancy features like an ice rink or salad bar? It has a combination ice rink salad bar. <laughs> wow. I it's, didn't know that they can do that. They can't. It's annoying because you have to put on ice skates to get salad. <laughs> so every time you yeah. want. I mean, it's good because it keeps the salad cool, but it's bad <laughs> because you have to put on ice skates and skate out to the salad bar. Right. Sounds dangerous, actually, for people who want salad but don't know how to skate. Yeah, incredibly. And uh, and very inconvenient in warm weather. It's just, it, it, in in hindsight, it was a bad idea. Didn't anyone try to warn you? Oh, everybody. Everybody was like, why are you doing this? This is, And I'm yeah. like, I just it just seems right. The heart wants what it wants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and the birds you- eat it. You know, it's just so stupid. <laughs> oh, you don't have... Um, we don't have a sneeze guard. We couldn't the, afford the sneeze guard. Oh, yeah. We sunk all the money into the ice, ice skating. The drink. thing with contractors is it's always more than they say it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Especially for a project like that. Um, Okay, so I think let's just go like go through your the narrative of 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 your life like sort of fast. Um, 
to give people a framework for everything. What? Although I know what? that it's, I know that's out there. But just real fast. So what? What? What do you want? What do you want me to say? I'll do it then. Okay, and great. you just tell Thank me where you. I'm wrong. Okay. Born in Chicago. Okay. Grew up in New Jersey. Yeah. Dad died. Yeah. Um, NYU. Uh-huh. Next. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Next. At what age did you realize you wanted to be a performer? Nine. Nine. What? What? What made you want to do it? There do you was remember? a. I did a play in summer camp, and there was a girl I liked in the play. So I was like, all right, well, that's for me. Okay. NYU. To major in theater, mm-hmm. but did not finish NYU. That's right, dropped out. How come? Um, just uh, got a job and was like, "Screw it, I don't need this." Which was the job? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nice. Okay, is that true? Yeah. And then, um, when did the state happen? Uh, well, it started that? in college, my freshman year of NYU. Right. We started it. Okay, so Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So then you quit because you saw the direction everything was going. Mm-hmm. And then then what happened? Then uh, I came back to New York. The rest of the guys finished school. We got a job on MTV doing a show called You Wrote It, You Watch It, which led to the state, our own show, and then just continued on mm-hmm. doing various things. Um, and then did you ever live in L.A.? Uh, briefly like from 99 to 2000 and i was like this is not for me how come um i didn't like the weather for one thing yeah it sucks it's so nice uh it does i find it oppressive yeah. i don't like the sunshine i hate it um are you east coast i born here but lived in new york for nine years and then i came back but um definitely prefer east coast weather yeah i can't bear the sun um i like it a little bit I like coming out here. Mm. I like a week or two of it. And then six months of sunshine, it it it, it makes me feel like I'm being beaten down by the sun. <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm being run over by the sun. And I don't like the town uh, architecturally. I don't like the industry. Uh, I don't like being surrounded by it. I didn't like the values. And I felt like if I stayed here, I was going to end up being something I didn't want to be. So, what what would that have been? Um, a a kind of um, generic sitcom actor. So you felt is it correct to say you felt like if you stayed here, your career was going to head in a certain direction you didn't want to go, or you were going to be you- both? I felt okay. like artistically, it would it would warp me. It would turn me into it would it would. I have a theory that that the air in LA changes your DNA so that you begin to talk about box office grosses in a non-ironic <laughs> way. I didn't want to be that person. Uh, I didn't want to care about that shit. I didn't want to care about what the ratings were for the Big Bang Theory. I didn't want to be on the Big Bang Theory. Mm. Um, or at least I didn't want to have that be my goal. I'd, I'd be happy to end up on a, on a sitcom, but the 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 kind of path that I felt like was laid out for me here in LA didn't agree with me constitutionally, so I just said fuck it and I left. That uh, I that takes a lot of integrity to do that. I think. Um, and it's weird because you don't strike me as someone with integrity. I agree with that. Totally agree with that. As I said, I am whorish <laughs> at my core. But yeah, um, integrity. Yeah, maybe. I think I mean I I it wasn't that wasn't the word that was in foremost in my mind. I was just like this isn't for me, and so 
But to know yourself and know what is and isn't for you. Yeah, I I guess I always admire that. I guess. Um, So I just sort of took a leap of faith and moved back to the East Coast, ended up on a show that I really liked called Ed, and uh, was developing my own stuff simultaneous to that. And it worked out fine. Now, in terms of um, values, you live in Connecticut. I spent Christmas in Connecticut. I haven't spent a lot of time there, but driving around, I was it's so beautiful and idyllic and I really could, I really kind of fell in love with it. And then I started thinking, but I know there's a dark side here. I've seen Stepford wives. I'm sure there is. Um, but there's a dark side everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's no place without a dark side. I mean, LA certainly has a dark side. It's more dark than light. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get it. I don't get what you're talking about. Haven't you listened to the red hot chili peppers? (laughs) You know, anything. Oh my God. They are the dark side of California and bridges. Um, But for you, what has the experience of living in Connecticut and raising your two kids in Connecticut been like? It's been great. I mean, it's been exactly what I want it to be. We live in the woods. It's very quiet. Um, There's no crime. There's no schools are good. There's no, it's great. I mean, it's just, it's lovely. Mm. Um, It's boring, but I like that. I like boring. Once you get to a certain age, it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to go out? You're going to do stuff? No. (laughs) No. I want to sit home. That's all I want to do is sit home. You became a runner in the book. Mm -hmm. Do you still run? No, but I think I'm going to get back into it. I kind of miss it. What do you miss about it? Um, The chap nipples? No, I miss the fact that uh, I was less morbidly obese than I currently am. You look pretty skinny. I feel morbidly obese. Okay. Yeah, you talk about that in the book, this this sense that um, that your body is just not what you want it to be, mm-hmm. but and that it's never been what you want it to be. That's right. Have there been times that you've been happier with it? No, not particularly. Never, ever. There have been moments where I sort of feel like I'm uh, making progress, and in those moments is when I stop making progress. <laughs> um i also loved the chapter about your feet Mm -hmm. that was hilarious thanks uh and i loved that in your love scene with bradley cooper in wet hot american summer you kept your socks on Mm -hmm. because you did not want to show anyone your feet that's right um okay so at a certain point in the book you uh and your wife go to make uh wills and living wills and she can, she says that she does not necessarily trust you with this decision. Mm-hmm. Were you like, what the fuck? Yeah. And, think, and think, I think I say in the book, what the fuck? Right. Yeah. She got it into her um, stupid little girl brain <laughs> that <laughs> I would kill her at the earliest possible opportunity. If there were ever an opportunity to pull the plug, I would kill her. In her in her mind, it wasn't out of malice. It wasn't because I didn't care for her or love her, but just because it would be the most expedient thing to do. Now, in her defense, that is true about most of the things in my life. I will do whatever is most expedient. When it comes to like ending the the life of my spouse, I feel like I would I would be a little bit more deliberate than that. I would right. probably give it ten minutes or fifteen minutes before <laughs> I told them to pull the plug. You know, I would think about it. Yeah. 
in terms of always choosing the most expedient thing, um, is that because do you not like to deliberate or are you just always on to the next thing or what? what is oh, that? well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of half kidding about things that I think are, uh, don't require or d- don't, don't need much thought. I mean, things that I don't really care about, I can make decisions fairly quickly uh, about things that, um, no, you know what? I'm actually, I actually make most decisions fairly quickly. Um, and I do sort of go for whatever's most expedient. Yeah. How come? Uh, uh, the path of least resistance, whatever's the easiest thing to do is the thing that I will choose to do 90% of the time. Although at the same time, like I write books, that's not easy to do. Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard. And yet I keep choosing to do it. Of all the books you've written, all 45, mm-hmm. which was the most difficult to write? They're all... Well, I shouldn't say that. The two... I, I've written three and a half because I co-wrote one. Um, and uh, the, the two uh, memoirs... You're not doing it right, which is the book that precedes navel gazing. And this have both been very, very hard to write. How come? Um, just because. Uh, well, the, uh, in the case of you're not doing it right, it took me a long time to just figure out how. It was the first time I'd really written a book, in in the sort of classic sense of a book. I'd written a previous <laughs> book, which was just a collection of silly essays. Um, and that was very easy to write because I just wrote one a day and then just dashed them off and didn't give a shit. I mean, mm-hmm. I cared, but I wasn't, I wasn't obsessing over them in the case of you're not doing it right. I really wanted to write a book like in, in the proper sense. And I had to figure out how to write. I had to learn how to write. Um, and so it took me a very, very long time just to even understand the tone that I wanted, how to, how to put one word after the other, how to make it make sense, how to have it um, be, you know, sort of serious, but not maudlin and funny, but not jokey and just thing after thing after thing. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I had the same struggles with, uh, navel gazing. I mean, I, I had a little more confidence that it would get written, but, uh, but just, it's just hard. It was very, this book was very, very hard to structure, to figure out how to make a book out of these kinds of swirling, um, anxieties that I've been having. Um, where did the idea for the book as a whole come from? Well, You're Not Doing It Right was a book about romantic relationships um, and a lot about my wife. And I and I talked about my mom a little bit in the book, um, but I, I knew there was sort of more I wanted to say on that subject. And so... Um, with her health being what it is and my own sort of um, continuing anxiety about my body, I sort of thought there was a parallel there that I could uh, exploit for money. (laughs) (laughs) The book has, um, is kind of a, in a way, a meditation on life and death. Like a lot of the sort of big, like, existential issues um did you come to any realizations as you wrote it or did anything crystallize for you the more i 
um, mole on issues of life and death and well on death um the less uh fear i feel about it the less concern i feel about it um the more i welcome its sweet embrace (laughs) (laughs) well there's a moment in the book that really resonated with me where you talk about it's kind of early in the book your belief that someone facing their own mortality reaches acceptance. Mm-hmm. And then you asked your mom how she felt about it. And like, she was not even close. To right. <laughs> <laughs> she's No, I mean, I ask her, you know, cause she's been essentially facing death for the last 12 years or more. And I said, are you, have you made any peace with it? And she's like, no, I'm absolutely terrified. Um, and that struck me as sad. And, and, um, and surprising. I mean, I, I sort of expected her to say, yeah, I've, you know, whatever, it comes when it comes. But that's not her attitude at all, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, good in a way. She's not going gently into that good night. <laughs> right. Um, so having lost one parent already, and I should say, the reason I'm not, I feel like my listeners are probably like, why are you not going delving into that? You've told that story on other podcasts, mm-hmm. and that story is out there. Um but having gone through that, something that I imagine you one could not really have closure on. Um, losing my dad. Yeah. No, I suppose not. Um, well, do do you feel like like you do? No, not particularly. Um, you know, it's hard to lose a parent when you're young. I, I, I probably harder to lose a parent sort of at the age where I was, like twelve, where um, I was just starting to really develop a relationship with him then it it would have been had I, had I been much younger and didn't really even have much much uh many memories or much sense of of him so uh yeah it was hard and um yeah in some ways continues to be hard you know it, it would have been very nice to have grown up with the father and to have that relationship and to have my kids have him in their lives um yeah, it's, it is hard and it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think it ever really resolves. Mm-hmm. So what I was going to say is having, or what I, was, what I was wondering about is having gone through that already, does that, do you think that affects dealing with what's going on with your mom? Um, I think what you're asking me is, am I prepared to lose my mother as a parent? That's not quite what I'm asking, but if you, but. No, it's more like it's. I think it's. Does it make it harder to potentially go through it again? Mm, I don't know. I mean, until I go through it, I have right. no idea. But, um, but it's so different. I mean, you know, I'm 44 now, um, and you know, my dad was 39 when he died. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fully formed adult at this point so and i think i understand death a lot better than i did then um and i have a very i have a complete relationship with my mother in a way that i didn't with my dad so i yeah i don't know i don't know if it'll be easier or harder i don't know what it'll be like yeah assuming that she dies first who knows i could get t-boned on the way to visit her today you describe yourself in the book as a pratheist which mm-hmm. i love Yes, which I define as uh, 
somebody who uh, doesn't believe or, or or prays to a god he doesn't believe in, um, in the hopes that I don't remember how I define it, but something basically like you'll get a message that he exists which you won't believe. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I related to that so strongly. And also to the uh, hesitation to use the word agnostic. Right, because it feels just hedging. like, a, it feels like a cop out to me. It, yeah, it feels like you're hedging and you're sort of like, you know, it's just sort of like, it's snarky. I, to me, it feels like you're being like, like, don't push me on this. Like, okay, look, <laughs> I don't know and I don't want to go any further. I don't even know if it's not wanting to go any further. I think it's just sort of like going, well... You know, it's a, it's a sort of like, well, I can't prove there's a God, but I can't prove there isn't. So. <laughs> um, the way you said that made me uh, think of this question I have for you, which is, do you feel like people expect you to be snarkier than you are? Um, well, maybe, maybe. I'm, I, I, I mean, I can be a dick, but my dickishness is is almost always in the service of love. <laughs> I mean, when I say like dickish, like I'm never a dick to people that I don't like. You know what I mean? Like I'm only dickish to people that I consider friends. And so my dickishness is always like jokey. Like I, I, I harbor no ill will towards anybody. And so I say shitty things to people, but always like as a joke. But then sometimes I take it too far, and then people get upset with me, or I'll st- or I'll accidentally hit a nerve. These people being your family, um, my family, my friends, anybody in my life. <laughs> I thought as I as I was as I was yelling at you that, uh, about complaining about that it was nine thirty. I thought, oh, her <laughs> listeners are going to think that I'm being serious, and they're no, gonna no, think- she's going to think you're being serious. I didn't think you thought I was being serious, but I thought your listeners might. No, I didn't think you were being serious, but it did occur to me that like. It's kind of a wake up call on how that could potentially be heard, which is even though I just meant it as a like, hey, I'm I'm you're a going sluggish. It actually sounds like, look what you made me do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in I your think- own insecurities. You were uh, you were projecting a kind of wrath. <laughs> yeah, a tyranny. <laughs> I need to keep that in check. My wrath. Well, you make a point in the book that uh, that is something I I think about a lot, which is that we should be nicest to the people who share our homes, mm-hmm. and yet oftentimes those are the people that get the worst. Oh yeah. Um, in fact, I noticed this weird thing happening when I first moved in with Daniel. That's my my now husband, which is if like if if I was home cuz I used to work a Sunday to Thursday schedule he worked Monday to Friday so on Fridays I would be home most of the day and he wasn't here and I'd be thinking how I miss him but then when he would get home all of a sudden I was like a, like on edge and a little bit bitchy for like the first I don't know 15 minutes mm. I do not know why it's something about comings and goings and mm-hmm. like I really had to just sort of deliberately get that like don't don't let that wrath out Allison, mm-hmm. <laughs> be polite. Just, I don't know what that is, but um, what have have you? Tr- are do you try to be nicer to the people closest to you? I I do, uh, I do try. I mean, it re- it's really just my wife because my kids, you know, fuck them. But it's really, 
No, I mean, I, it's much easier for me to be nicer to my kids because uh, they're my children and I, you know, I'm, I, I don't think I'm ever mean to them. They, they might disagree, but, um, but like I can be mean to my wife and mm-hmm. she can be mean to me. And um, I, I, I do try to be aware of that and, and keep that in, in check and to understand where it's coming from and to remember that, um, like to literally say to yourself, oh, wait, you love this person. Mm-hmm. So act like it. And it's not always easy. Something that um, that struck me as I read the book is that you really try to be a good person. Yeah, but but I don't succeed a lot of times. Do you have a lot of regrets? Um, no, I wouldn't say I have a lot of regrets in the sense that I have a lot of things that are constantly gnawing at me. I mean, I think I make my fair share of mistakes um both in the in terms of you know actions that i take and and the way i relate to people um but it's hard for me it's hard i I don't i don't beat myself up too much about that stuff i mean maybe i should more but i do try to learn from it um yeah i mean i'm not i'm not a great guy i'm i'm whatever I'm just some, I'm, you know, I, I'm a fuck up like everybody. You come across as extremely likable in the book. Yeah, I wrote, guys, I wrote the book. <laughs> well, cagey then. <laughs> you know, you knew what you were doing. I try to put myself down a lot in the book. <laughs> no, so, yeah, but I mean, that's part of the likableness. Self-deprecating. Right. You're like, this asshole's a good guy. But I mean, there's that moment when I th- I forget how old you were in the book, 12 maybe, where you heard about a woman who was sick and who you, who the adults around you were worried she was going to die. Mm-hmm. And you, were you 12 when this happened? I don't know. Do somewhere in there. Yeah. 10, 12. No, probably between 10 and 12. You And you went into your bedroom and tried to send like healing thoughts to her. Mm-hmm. It's, it's moving. I was moved. Well, I'm glad. And incidentally, it worked. <laughs> you cured her. I cured her. Yeah. But were you raised with... I guess I'm wondering where this sense of we should be of service to other people, we should help other people comes from. Well, look, you need to understand. I do no charity work. I give not nearly enough money to causes that I care about or believe in that has to do with money panic, not so much mm-hmm. with the lack of desire and the chair and the lack of charity has to do with a, a, a kind of um, panic about letting people down. I'm afraid to like even engage because I'm afraid I'm going to let people down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not out there saving anybody. I'm You're not sending there, thoughts. I'm sending thoughts. <laughs> I'm, tw- I'm, 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 you know, writing tweets <laughs> of righteous indignation. <laughs> I'm doing very, very little to make the world a better place. That being said, in my personal life, in the small circle of people that I uh, interact with and care about, I do try to be uh, a good person. Um, but I think everybody tries. I mean, I think every, I don't think I'm doing anything special. I mean, I think everybody at least reflects on how can I, you know, do like just live this day a little bit better than maybe a day that I regret. 
I don't know if everyone reflects on that. I would hope so. Maybe they do. Do you? I do. Yes. Do you? Jeff? I do, but I definitely would not say that everyone does. There there are people that it just does not occur to them. But there's unanimity at this table that we all try to do that. Yes. So we're three unique, special, exceptional, different than other people people. (sighs) Uh, Yeah, I don't think so. I think I'm, I'm, I, I basically think I'm just like everybody, you know? I think I'm like, I think I'm, you know, the, I feel like I'm like so sort of middle of the road, white bread, normal. Um, but I just, I feel like really, I'm... Really, you with all your neuroses. Yeah. And I feel like I'm just maybe a little bit more uh, willing to share the sort of dark shit and a little more articulate about the dark mm-hmm. shit. But I, 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 I don't think I'm doing anything special. I don't think I am. Uh, I don't think I approach life any, in any special way. In terms of being afraid, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm ruggedly handsome. Yes. So there's that. There's that. Um, has that been a hindrance? Yes. Yes. Nobody takes me seriously. Yeah, it's tough being a triple threat. When you and, and and the 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 triple that you refer to is my face and my two pecs. <laughs> you said that you are afraid to disappoint people. Do mm-hmm. you consider yourself a people pleaser? Um, no, that's part of what I'm afraid of. Is like I'm afraid of like uh, saying to like some kid, "I'll be your big brother," and then like three weeks later, I'm just like, "Yeah, I got to go to L.A." So, <laughs> you know, you're gonna have to go to that soapbox car soap box car rally whatever mm-hmm. that so derby. car derby, derby? <laughs> so box Race? derby so box derby right that's what it's called jeff you're a car person <laughs> so box derby is correct. is correct you're gonna have to go to that soapbox you're gonna have to find another <laughs> ride to the soapbox derby sorry yeah. that's what i'm afraid of right you know so like committing to-, to something and then like being just like being unable to fulfill my commitment mm. i have that fear too i pretty much don't like anything to ever be scheduled or in the calendar except my podcast guests because that brings me comfort when i know what's happening but in general for me i like to keep everything very open-ended so that the, and then i like to cancel yeah of course that everybody likes to everyone. cancel yeah except when i cancel i feel really guilty yeah but the person on the other end is, is thrilled happy. i know like, oh my god thank god i really didn't want to have to see her right but then you see the person and you're glad you did it always and then for about a night after I'm social, which is funny considering I used to be a very social person. I feel like everyone was in their 20s. But um, then afterwards, I'm like, that was really great. I should do that again. And then thankfully, that wears off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wears off. Let's take some questions that people sent in over Twitter. And we have a song. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for Right. Leanne Ward says, what does he enjoy most about doing his awesome podcast? Just meeting people. I mean, it gives me an opportunity to meet people that I wouldn't meet under other circumstances. A physicist, for example, an opera singer, the lead singer of a cool band, that kind of thing. Um, Fonz says, why did he change his last name? Uh, My original last name is Schwartz, which just sounds so fucking pedestrian and Jewy. And I was like, why? I just never liked it. 
So black is the translation of Schwartz. So I thought, that's just so snappy. I'll just be Michael Black. And then I had to be Michael Ian Black for union rules because there's already a Michael Black. Gotcha. According to IMDb, you changed it because there was already a Michael Schwartz. And according to IMDb, you... um, like are self-proclaimed ashamed of your Jewishness, but then you formed Stella with Michael Showalter and David Wayne. And the, I wish I could remember the wording. It was like, and the thing that bonded you guys in that show was your Jewishness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That could not be further from the truth. I know that that is why I bring it up. Um, Oh, but speaking of Mr. Man bun says, will Michael and Michael ever iron out their issues? Mm. Well, we had a show called Michael Showalter and I had a TV show called Michael and Michael Have Issues. So this was just that's that question is just a reference. Yes. Not really so much a question. I mean, I don't know that we have issues. Do you? No, that was the name of a TV show. Okay. But to sort of loop back to my my snarkiness question, I think you and Michael Showalter. Has he been on your podcast? Yeah, more than once. Created such such specific, hilarious, absurdist personas that it's been really interesting to see that both, I mean, obviously there's so much more to both of you than that, but that people might think that that's who you are. Oh yeah. And yet it, you guys have both have these, these bodies of work that have so much heart and so much poignancy and that are so much deeper than that. Even though I, th- I, I love the personas that we're talking about, but I guess my question of people, do people think you're snarky sort of has to do with, do people think that that is you? Yeah. There is definitely, I think people, um, part of the reason I started uh, writing these books, part of the reason I started doing stand-up, part of the reason, um, part, a lot of it had to do with just trying to escape that and trying to escape a, a kind of self-created cage and mm-hmm. feeling like it was uh, becoming very limiting in that it wasn't creatively fulfilling anymore so i had to figure out ways to uh sort of give myself some elbow room artistically and what created the cage oh just like it was i mean again it was expediency like when we started doing the state um i developed this character called the on-air personality which just (laughs) sort of came very naturally to me which was just sort of a sort of self-obsessed narcissist um and like that character was just very easy for me to sort of move forward into other things. Um, and I found it funny for a while. Um, and then, you know, that sort of, um, blurred into the VH1 stuff that I did. The I love the eighties, nineties, mm-hmm. whatever. And it was, you know, very deadpan and very, um, dry. And it just, uh, it didn't allow for me to just sort of be a full human being. And maybe I wasn't capable of being a full human being until that point in my life, at least, you know, in, ter- in my work. And so I just, I had to figure out ways to, to do that. And the podcast is another way uh, that I do that. You know, I, I, it's not a comedy podcast. I'm just, it's, it's pretty sincere. Mm-hmm. The character that that came easy to you, this self-obsessed narcissist, had you met people like that? No. I mean, I I think um, it came out of being very interested in um, early SNL and the way that they would create these personas for themselves. So, like, there was a John Belushi persona, Mm -hmm. and I was very interested in sort of 
the line between what was really him and what wasn't him and thought it would be fun to do a similar thing for the state. And so it it, it sort of started with me as like the self-obsessed narcissist. And, and then we started writing these pieces called High We're the State, where we were all kind of like, you know, sort of caricatures of ourselves. Um, I mean, I, th- I think I was... I mean, I think everybody is, but particularly at that age, I think I was self-obsessed to a certain degree, but I wasn't the monster that I portrayed myself to be. Mm. Martha Cooper says, what does he prefer more, acting or writing? Um, um, uh, I like them for different things. I like acting for uh, the money and for the just kind of ease of it. I mean, acting is just, when you're just acting, it's just sort of fun for the most part. And I like writing for the challenge of it. Aris No Perfume says, and I have to admit, I feel as if I should know this what this reference is, but I, I don't. Does he ever eat his soup out of a sock when he is feeling nostalgic? I don't know what that reference is either. Oh, okay, great. I thought maybe it was your famous nostalgic sock, sock soup, soup. No. bit. All right. Um, Julio Quadra says, how are he and Mark Marin?" Oh, well, we we snipe at each other a lot uh, in public on Twitter. Um, not a lot, sometimes, because we both get a certain amount of satisfaction out of being as mean as humanly possible <laughs> to each other. And that has made us better friends than probably our flailing attempt at friendship over the last 20 years. <laughs> I should say my flailing attempts because he never had any interest in being friends with me because <laughs> he really is a dick. Um. Brianne says, will there be a season two of the Jim Gaffigan show? I love Michael Ian Black's character. Yes. We start shooting it in a few weeks. Oh, I should have asked, what are you out here? Are you doing another period? Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Um, Paul and Lulu the Staffy. So this is from a person and his dog. Says, what kind of impact did doing I Love the Blank have on his career? We talked about that a bit. Is Is there more about that that you feel like? No. You have to say no. Okay. Um, of all of the early stuff in your career, though, is there one thing that you feel like um, got you got you the most recognition in terms of like people? Because I feel like people who've done those VH1 shows get recognized all the time. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, no. I mean, I've never really been particularly recognized really? or recognizable i mean you know i'm sort of like you know i'm i'm like marginally famous i'm famous on the margins in a given day how many times do you get recognized in a given day i don't go out of my house in a given day so where you often, have left the house so often i get recognized <laughs> <laughs> everybody in my home recognizes me <laughs> okay let's do just me or everyone Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay, this is where people write in with things they think or do, Mm -hmm. quirks, essentially. And they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? And then we weigh in. Mm -hmm. Sunlit Cactus says, when I send a dissatisfied email to customer service, get anxious when I see their response in my inbox and kind of don't want to open. Anytime I am dealing with anything that is other than sunshine on email, I have this reaction. I 
welcome fights with companies. Really? Nothing makes me happier. How come? Because I want to stick it to the man because I have an authority problem. So do you do you send off? But I no, I almost never do it. I almost never do it because I know if I do, I'm gonna I, it's gonna start a wormhole. <laughs> and, of what? And, Just constant. Yeah, and obsession. I'm rarely dissatisfied. That's the other thing. Like I'm always like, oh, that's fine, whatever. Do you ever send something back at a restaurant? Never. Have you ever? No. Have you? Um. Yes. Well, yeah. Like if I order, <clears throat> I think I'm. No one wants to be at a restaurant with me. Mm-hmm. I think I need to just come around to realize that. And I've probably eaten like like pounds of phlegm. Um, but if I order a salad with a dressing on the side and it comes with a dressing on, I will in like the most nicest plate way point it out. Um, which I always felt fine doing until on the podcast it's come up a few times from people who have worked in restaurants that like no matter how you do it, if you send food back, they're going to fuck with your food. Hmm. I'd never heard that. You haven't heard that? Mm-mm. Well, that's what they say. Maybe they've just happened to work at places where everyone's disgusting. But Maybe you just eat at terrible restaurants. It's possible. Uh, they have a heavy dressing hand. I will say that. Right. I have a personal email, just mirror everyone. When I send an email afterwards, I often realize like I don't remember writing the person's name in the to field. I don't remember how that part. It's sort of like when you drive home and you have no and you weren't you were in a trance almost like you're unaware of mm-hmm. you don't remember specifics. I can never remember the entering anything in the to field, but I know I sent it and then I think, who the hell did I send that to? And then I go check and I send it to the right person always. Okay, that's just you. I don't I refuse to believe it's just me. Mine is I uh, often refuse to call somebody by their name because I think I'm getting it wrong. I have that all the time. People that I know where I know their name. Yeah. I okay. do that. I didn't always have it though. I used to think of myself as someone who's good at names. And then all of a sudden I like overthought myself into no, I might be terrible at names. Right. Maybe I can't live up to the expectation. Like you'll notice I haven't called you by your name. Do you even know what down. it is right now? No. Try. Janison? <laughs> Close enough. I'll answer to that. <laughs> Narrator says, uh, my just mirror everyone. I see a lollipop or some form of candy on a stick and I think I want it. But after like a minute, I throw it out. Now you host a snacks podcast. I know. As soon, I know as soon as I see a stick, I don't want it. Really? As soon as I see something on a stick, no interest. I don't want that stick taste or texture in my mouth. Yes. Is there not anything on a stick that you would be tempted by? Uh, uh, a corn dog, mm. a frozen banana dipped in chocolate. Those okay. are the two. You know, I f- it's been years since I've had a frozen banana dipped in chocolate, but I find... I don't think I've ever had one. Oh, really? But I like the idea. As someone who's a little further on the frozen banana journey than you are, let me tell you, you bite in and then the banana offers a lot of resistance oh. and it's like very, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Not worth the effort. It's not. Maybe I just need to let them thaw more. Jeff, frozen banana thoughts? I don't think I've ever had one. I, it sounds like something I would like. But I don't think I would like it. As I'm talking, I'm realizing I think the problem is just that when I've tried to to bite in, it's too frozen. Because I, I, I think, you know what? Why even freeze the banana? 
Just stick a banana in chocolate. Yeah, that's fine. That'd be real mushy, I guess. Well, it's like frozen grapes. I know people that are into frozen grapes now. Have you had them? No. It's the same thing. You think, oh, well, it's nice. It's sweet. It's going to give it a little crunch. But it's like it's like biting an ice cube. Not I in a like good a way. frozen grape. Do you? I like it a lot. There's something about the texture that just, it's like, yeah. From freezer to mouth, though, do you give it a little time? Um, yeah, maybe a little bit. Not a lot. You want it, you still want it to be very cold. All right. Seedless, uh, white. Yes. Jared Champagne says, for the men, while shaving my face can never clean up every single shaving from the sink, always one straggler. Tissue. You get tissue and then you just wipe it down. Okay. Yeah, I don't have that problem. It's just you, Jared. Against all Todd's says, I cringe when someone calls a female comedian a comedienne. You don't say stewardess anymore. Are we done with comedienne as a word? I think so. Because... A publicist just pitched me his a guest um, who I would like to have on the show, and in the subject line, it was like, would you be interested in comedian so-and-so? No. I think we're done with that word. It's, okay. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an anachronistic word. Well, someone should tell this publicist. Ryan Quick, he's an anachronistic human, though, so um, Ryan Quick says, see 13.1 stickers and think only half, psh. Mm-hmm. I hope the psh came across on the mic as intended. I understood it. Even though I can barely jog a mile. Right. Well, I make a point uh, in my book about writing, about running a half marathon and uh, in saying it's not particularly impressive. Hard. I'm impressed. As someone who tried, I was briefly on the tennis team in high school. We did two mile warm ups, mm. which I've, I don't think I've ever run two miles. Um Within the first, I don't know how many, whatevers, I had to pull off to the side and dry heave. Yeah, but that's because you hadn't been running. If you just run, if you'd been, if you'd just run for four weeks, you'd, the two miles would not be a big deal. I can't get past all the things that stop me from doing it. The things that you talk about in your book. Right. The monotony and the pain. Yeah. Like I've never run and had it not be painful and pretty awful. Yeah, that's running. You've just described running. <laughs> I can't wait to get back to it. For a second, but when you said that, like, you found that if you go slow enough, you can sort of build up. Yeah, well, that's the idea. You just, you go slower. And, and so when you, when you feel like you're dying, you slow down. I always just speed up because I'm like, I want to just be done. Right. That's why you're dry heaving. Yeah. Uh, okay. C.T. Olson says, my family said it's odd that I feel warmer when I'm not wearing socks. Figure I should confirm with the just me or everyone experts. Um. Yeah, I think it's warmer that you... I mean, I think it's weird. It's odd that you feel warmer without socks. I agree. Okay. You should get something checked. Darla Garrett says... I I would start with the socks. Check your socks. (laughs) Right. Are there ice packs in them? (laughs) Do you store them in the freezer? Why are they so cold? Darla Garrett says, I could eat Brussels sprouts forever. Brussels sprouts, interestingly, I find to be one of those foods that I get full on fast and like almost full and sick feeling. Although I really enjoy Brussels sprouts, but they're not something that I could, it's not like bread and butter, which like I could eat way too much of. My theory on your Brussels sprout eating uh, experience is that Brussels sprouts, which I adore now, are best when they're sort of crispy and served with pancetta or whatever it Mm. is. 
Um, it's heavy. It's got a lot of oil. That's why you're feeling sort of sick from it. But I, but I have had, I don't mean to negate what you're saying because you are right. But I went through a phase where I would just order a bag of Brussels sprouts from Trader Joe's or I would buy it, not order it. And then I would just eat it plain. And even that mm. I would begin to, but you know what? It's just, it's, it's, it's that's a like dense, a pound of food. Yeah, it's a dense fibrous vegetable. Yeah. A dense fibrous vegetable that makes your apartment smell terrible. Oh. Up there with cauliflower, which I make a lot too. Okay. James Leroy Wilson says, seems like everyone has started saying wonky. I have no idea where it came from. Kind of wonky. I would agree. I remember there was a time where I was like, I did not know that word. And now I know that word and it's used everywhere. I do not feel like this word is a recent addition to the language. I don't feel like people are using it particularly more. No, I don't. I don't think he's saying now. I think he's just saying there was no wonky. Suddenly wonky was everywhere. Right. He's tracking the evolution of a word in the language. This is a common occurrence in English. So I, I don't think it's particular to wonky. But would you agree that that is the case with wonky? It did not it, where you can trace every word back to some time. Every word is wonky. We are all wonky. <laughs> um, There's nothing special about the word wonky is what I'm saying. Yeah, It's a plate of shrimp thing for him. He hears the phrase plate of shrimp and now everywhere he goes, he's hearing plate of shrimp. Right. The, in, the and, and while the usage of wonky may have increased over time, it has, it has not suddenly exploded like a supernova into the idiom. It, is, it has been there. I went to school with a kid named Wonky, and I never put it together that it's, the same, it's essentially the same word. Uh, Caucus O'Flanagan, and this is the last one, says, Just mirror everyone. Silently prefer 24-hour time and the metric system. Well, sounds as if it's not so silent anymore. No, I uh, when I schedule blog posts, I have to use twenty four hour time, and I always have to count from twelve because uh, I it's it's not second nature at all to me. I'm a big fan of AM PM. I could easily see myself falling in love with the metric system, um, but I'm not going to be a dick about it. I feel like this guy's being a dick about it. Yeah. A little bit. Mm-hmm. A little bit. I don't appreciate it. <laughs> I'm still holding Jimmy Carter personally. I'm still mad at him for having to learn the metric system in the 70s and then right. to have no application for it. It would have been great, though, if we'd, if we'd gone over. Yeah. It's, it's a better system. Yeah, yeah. And it's crazy. It's the only people using SA. It's like the United States and Burkina Faso. It's, it's this, <laughs> there's only two states use, using it, and the other one is... Right, but the only two that matter. One at the super least. Yeah. Forces, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, how do you guys feel about uh, Celsius and Fahrenheit? I I like the concept of Celsius because the zero is based on the freezing point of water, and right. then hundred is based on the boiling point. It seems a lot less arbitrary, so I like that. But I just have no frame of reference for it. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. Yeah. Well, Michael Ian Black, it was delightful having you on the show. I was delighted to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, you guys. If you're going to buy something like Michael Ian Black's new book or plenty of other things, click through the Amazon banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps out the show. Thank you for your Amazon support. Thank you for your PayPal support. We have ringtones and T-shirts and bonus episodes. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. That's one of the ringtones we have. 
And also, touch the tushy, touch, you need these. The tushy, Just go to alisonrosen.com. Uh, well, actually, you'll find the store link when you go there. Um, subscribe, itunes.com slash alisonrosen. Follow me on Twitter at alisonrosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-N-B-F. Email us, show at gmail.com. I may or may not have already said subscribe at itunes.com slash alisonrosen. I don't listen to myself. Jeff, where should we go to find you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. Okay. So everyone should go out and get Navel Gazing, True Tales of Bodies, Mostly Mine, but also My Mom's, which I know sounds weird, by Michael Ian Black, and also listen to his podcast. But tell them what else uh, they should should plug whatever you'd like to plug and tell no, us where to find fine. you. That's fine. What you did is great. Okay. And on Twitter, you're Michael Ian Black. <clears throat> I am. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Jeff. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Alison Rosen Show? 